0: Fingers are insured for six million dollars. Each one of them, they ought to be. You know, I was <coughs> standing back there waiting to come up and enjoying what she was doing, and little my little granddaughter Kinsey sitting back there, and uh, you know, and I was wasn't really paying much attention, and she had her Bible open, <coughs> and next to it she had a blank sheet of paper, and she had uh, the date on it, and then she had uh, John chapter two, and then she had. Grandpa's Sermon, and I, I thought to myself, you know, for you as parents, <clears throat> there is absolutely no greater blessing in the world to see that the Word of God in Christ impacts your family to the third and fourth generation, and um, to know that, uh, you know, that the Word of God in its promises do what it says it's going to do. And, uh, you know, for me, there's, there's, I appreciate all that, you know, the people that God has put in my world that, you know, went to Christ and serving throughout the world. And, you know, I get letters and phone calls and not letters, but phone calls. Nobody mails letters anymore. Emails uh, all on a weekly basis and, you know, people thanking me for this and that. And, you know, some of them I haven't heard of for 20, 30 years. And I do appreciate all that, but I'm going to tell you right now, the bottom line for any mom and dad and family is well, the legacy that you build with your, your own kids. And, um, you know, I, I thank the Lord every day for, for that and never want to lose sight of that. And, you know, I know I didn't see Maddie's or Macy's, but I guarantee you they're doing the same thing. And as many of your kids are out there today, you know, they've come to learn today. And, uh, you know, and that's why I work so hard at always having something to give you. Um, you especially on a day like today, you make the effort to be here. I want to make the effort to, um, to have something for you that you can, you can learn to grow with. Now, last week, we looked at one of the most amazing teachings in all of the Bible about, you know, our work that we do for the Lord, And it it was centered around the story of Jesus going down into the temple and uh, purging the house of God and uh, cleansing the temple, overturning the tables. It must have been a sight, overturning the tables and driving out the undesirables that had actually polluted the nation of Israel and most certainly the congregation of the nation of Israel. And we, as always, looked at the parallels. You know, I can never stress enough the importance of learning from history, learning the things that, uh, you know, that uh, keep repeating themselves, and how that the spiritual condition of God's people at the first coming of Christ, the great lesson is that it's just as it is today with Christ's church at the second coming of Christ. And how that the spiritual condition of God's people, uh, it was a complete breakdown of any real spirituality or biblical work. And, you know, and I think the the greatest lesson for me, and I would think of and hope it would be for you. I mean, there's always, you hear things, you know, and you get things you write down in your Bible and things that are important. But for me, I usually try to find one thing that I hang my hat on. And many times, you know, there'll be multiple things, but I I try to come away with whatever I hear with one thing that, you know, no matter what I do with everything else, it it permeates me to the point in my mind that I'll never forget it. And I think the greatest lesson in all of this is to see how that, when truth showed up, and that truth was Christ, but we know that he's the written word, And when the truth showed up, it really revealed what was really going on. I think that is the greatest single thing that I personally would take away from last week's message. You know, receiving God's truth, John chapter 8, verse 32, tells us that it sets us free. Free from sin, free from everything that puts us in bondage. But rejecting that truth... Will put you under that bondage. <coughs> but in either case, whether a person accepts it or rejects it, it will always explode expose who we really are. You know, I <coughs> I've watched people all my life because I've dealt with people for the majority of my life. And I watch how that people in any given situation or circumstance how they will embrace or they will reject truth. And and it's true. It's true here with people that you work with. You'll see people, I know I've had people that I've seen headed down the wrong road for a disastrous life. I mean, they're headed for a dead-end street that's going to probably cancel them out from ever being whatever God wants them to be. And I know that you guys have done the same thing. You work with people, you disciple people, and you try to sit down and you try to tell them, and you know you try to lay out many times you try to lay out what your own experience was. I know I do that, and you know it's a it's always because it, it's always an amazing thing to me because believe me in any given situation, you always want the truth of God's word on your side, whether you don't like what it says to you or whether you can. You love what it says to you. Not everything in the Bible is going to be pleasant to you because we as human beings, in most cases, don't do everything right within the Bible. But you have to come to the place, as the Bible says, he that loveth the honeycomb, even the bitter things are sweet. And we have to come to the place that when it's truth and the truth is real and the biblical principles are on, you know, no way around it, and it's clear in the Bible... It's always been amazing to me to watch what people will do. Some people will embrace the truth, and some people will reject the truth. And, uh, you know, because it's so important, because without the truth of God in any situation, you really don't have anything. Once you let the truth of what the Bible tells you about life, relationships, people, yourself, circumstances that you get into, once that truth goes out of your life, you have nothing. And now you're left to your own devices. Now you make life up as you want it to be. And I've seen it all in my life and yet people like that are in churches every Sunday. They sing the hymn just like we did here a few moments ago. They carry the right Bible to church. And on the outside, they have all the right answers. But the real Downside of their life is they have been faced with truth and they've rejected it. We saw last week in Hebrews chapter 4 verse 1 that there was no truth with Israel. There was no mercy and there was no knowledge of God in the land. You know, and I I try to tell you all the time, it's not just that you have it, the Bible. Every Christian has a Bible. Most, not, maybe not most of them, but many of them have the right Bible. And it's, it's not about whether you believe it or not. But it's understanding that when push comes to shove in your life and you have a circumstance, a situation, a relationship, anything in your world, truth will sort out any issue for you. When you, when you allow it to do the work that God intended for it to do. But many of God's people today that you will see and work with and, and, and try to help, they will never embrace the truth of the reality of their circumstances or their life's issues. It's just easier to move down to Egypt And build a little cabin along that river that was the main river that flew through Egypt that is so pertinent to God's people's lives who reject truth. And you build a little cabin by the denial. And you live there. And you justify yourself. You bring in all the support people who are just like you, who have rejected truth. And you try to really convince yourself that... uh, you know, that you're okay, and it's, hey, come on, it's always easier for all of us to blame our problems on somebody else than to take responsibility for them ourselves. That great teaching goes all the way back to Genesis chapter uh, uh, 3 and 4 with Cain and Abel, and all the way back to Genesis chapter 2 with Adam and Eve, that uh, when Adam and Eve fell, uh, Adam wanted to get out from under his responsibility, and when the Lord said, "What did you do?" He made it very clear when he said, "Well, Lord, the woman that you gave me." See, and people today continue to live in a world, Christian world. Now, I'm not preaching about unsaved people today. We know where that's at. the the, the continual you know the continuing lives life in a world. Christian world, uh, just like it was with Israel at the first coming of Christ, a world without any real truth. And they have lost Israel, has lost their perspective. I've preached about it many, many weeks. They've lost their position, and they've lost their purpose. They, too, like Israel, uh, Christianity today has a form of godliness. The people that I'm going to preach about today that many of you work with, because the story today is about ministry, they're in churches all across this country. But when truth shows up and God, as we saw last week, overturns our tables of life, they don't like it. And one of the greatest things, that I didn't preach on this last week because I was going from another direction, but I'm going to hit it today in the practical sense. People will always, when they don't want truth, they don't like truth, they'll always go back to what they were actually doing, and slide right back into it. That's what Israel did. That's why he has to kick them out of the temple two times. They didn't learn the lesson the first time when he kicked over the tables and he threw everybody out with a scourge. You know why? Because they didn't like what he said. They didn't like what he did. They rejected him as true. So what? Three and a half years later, they're right back at it again. Boy, if that isn't God's people. That's why God's people's lives become so completely powerless and they get destroyed because they just keep making, like Israel, the same mistakes over and over and over and over and over again. The Bible doesn't give me this bit of information, but I'm, I'm a pretty fair guy when human nature. I would say, I'm not sure what day he kicked him out of the temple. Let's say it was Friday. Let's say it was Good Friday and they all had fish and then he went down to the temple and he, he turned over the tables and he kicked everybody out. I would probably bet by Monday they were back in business. They certainly are when he shows up again and don't kid me that it just happened before he came back that, that next three and a half years. Let me tell you something. When God's people, the nation of Israel, parallel to you and me, when you reject truth, Bible says it in Proverbs, the dog just keeps returning to his vomit and the pig to her wallow. Oh, great principles. Then we, we looked at the concept of Christ's hour. That great phrase, mine hour has not yet come. And I showed you how that is used several times through the Gospels. And I defined that for you as the hour of his crucifixion his finishing the work that God had called him for and sent him to do that was up against the Pacific hour. And when he's on the cross and he finished that work, he said, it is finished. And have at that hour of his work is a picture, Matthew chapter 20, I took you there and showed you that great analogy of, of our hour to do our work within the church age. Because just as assuredly, as I told you throughout the last couple of months, is God had a work for his son. Philippians 1 verse 6 says that he's got a work for you and for me. His hour was his work on the cross that he finished that work. And what he did by that is he set up our work, my work, to finish my work through the cross. And then I talked to you about 11th hour Christianity. How we are right up to, at the end of all of this. So with that in mind, I want to close out chapter 2 today and I want to look at, I want to look at verses 18 through 25. And uh, so let's get into it. Let's read it here. John chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. And then I want to spend some time Well, we'll get to that point. Then answered the Jews and said unto him, What sign showest thou unto us, seeing that thou doest these things? Jesus answered and said unto them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. They said, the Jews, Forty and six years uh, was this temple in building, and wilt thou rear it up in three days? but he spake of the temple of his body. When therefore he was risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this unto them, and they believed the scriptures and the word which Jesus had said. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, in the feast day, many believed in his name, and when he saw the miracles which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself unto them, because he knew all men, and needed not that any should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. Let's pray. Father, uh, help us today within this body of people here and the people that are listening to me today are a great host of men and women who have committed themselves to this church. They didn't let the pandemic stop them. They didn't let the fear of the world being upside down and being on fire uh stop them. <clears throat> they understood that we had a job to do and we were going to continue to do that job under the day of Jesus Christ. And they work with people. They work with me in ministry. They work by my side. I, I give people them to work with. People ask for them. And they do a tremendous job in doing what uh Lord, I started out doing all by myself and I learned a long time ago that the key to a successful ministry was, was me investing in people to teach them to invest in somebody else and multiplying uh, in any church, you know, what one person was doing. So uh, help them learn today the lessons that I've had to learn. Help us to uh, gravitate to the truth of your word and to, and to really just embrace these things. And Lord, help me to say it clearly, cleanly, And Lord, uh, I thank you for the word of God that you've given to us and me particularly. And help me declare it today. In Jesus' name, for his sake we ask it. Amen. Now, to me, this passage has always been a help to me in ministry. I've told you folks in our people ministry, also in Bible ministry, and I've said it on Thursday night and said it many, many times. The key to people is understanding the patterns of human nature. You know, the world likes to get us to believe that everybody is so different from the other person that there's no real uh, way to track them, and that's certainly not true. I mean, everybody looks differently, and everybody has different personality traits. I get that. But we all have an old sin nature and a human nature, and that follows a pattern. And when you understand the patterns... (coughs) That it helps you understand people. For my work here and my hour, we will see as we develop the book of John that all Christ's ministry, he met and faced opposition. I don't think there was a day in his life that he was free from somebody not liking what he was doing. And it's always been an amazing thing to me. Jesus Christ is the only man in the history of the world that when he came, he never did anything wrong to anybody, never did anything bad to anybody, never did anything but want to help somebody, yet nobody wanted anything to do with him. These are lessons you want to keep close to your heart in ministry. We will see and develop that as we come through here. And if you you study deep enough, You'll see that the Roman Empire was in power at this time, and certainly the greatest enemy of Christianity <laughs> was and is the Roman Empire. But you will see and hopefully understand that his real opposition was never Rome. But the real opposition that he faced was his own people, his own nation. The very people and nation that he came to save. The Bible says the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. That's not you directly. Now later on it becomes inspirationally now, but at the time that said, it isn't the Son of God, it's the Son of Man. He came to seek and save Israel. And yet, as we know the well versed John chapter one, verse eleven, that he came unto his own, didn't he? And his own received him not. And all he did was bring them the truth of God's word. That was his crime. The only crime that they could ever pin on him, and they tried everything. But the only true crime that he committed, as far as the world was concerned, and his people were concerned, that he brought them the truth of the word of God. He didn't come to destroy them. He didn't come to hurt them. But he came that through truth to make them better. Through truth to get them back to God is where they needed to be because we can see the disastrous situation they're in. And they hated him for it. They plotted and planned against him. They plotted and planned against him to discredit Him, to destroy Him. They lied about Him, and they totally rejected Him. And in time, they made their alliance with Rome, and you know the story, they they crucified Him. And the great cry that is one of the great statements in the Bible to their demise is, God's people, who Jesus Christ came to give the truth, the greatest statement they ever made in his coming was, "We have no king but Caesar." Now, going back to last week's message, I, I want you to look at verse 17. I didn't preach on this last week. In fact, I read it, but I just basically ignored it because I wanted to, uh, you know, I wanted to, uh, um, you know, I wanted to use it today and it says and his disciples remembered that it was written <clears throat> the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up now that's a quote if you don't know that already from psalm's chapter 69 verses 7 8 and 9 <clears throat> and it says back there because for my sake i have borne repro- for thy sake i have borne reproach shame and covered my face I have become a stranger unto my brethren and an alien unto my mother's children. For the zeal, now here comes the quote, for the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up and the reproaches of them that reproached thee are fallen upon me. Now this is a reference to the Jews, the nation of Israel rejecting Jesus Christ and the zeal they have here is not to follow him. The zeal they have is to destroy him, devour him, eat him up. Now I I don't know if you can see this or not, but let me point it out to you. There's two rejections here in this psalm. The first rejection is his own personal family. Matthew chapter thirteen verses fifty five verses fifty six tells us that Jesus had at least six brothers and sisters. The idea that the Roman Catholic Church that Mary was a perpetual virgin, and she never had any more kids. Of course, it's just one lie and a bunch of lies that the Roman Catholic Church puts out. But what's even more interesting is when he says here, he says that an alien to my mother's children, as far as you can tell from the Bible, his own brothers and sisters rejected him. The only one who didn't, that we have a record of in Acts chapter 16 and then in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 7 is James, who was his brother. All the rest of his brothers and his sisters wanted nothing to do with him. And you know what? That in itself brings up a tremendous principle. Because truth can separate you from your own family. It did here. And I'm sure when his brother... You know, what an amazing thing to stand at the great right-throw judgment knowing that you were a, a brother of Jesus or a sister of Jesus and you rejected I, I can't even get my mind wrapped around that one. But I'm sure, you know, to justify themselves, just like people do today, this would have been hard, but I'm sure they tried to do it that they blamed the rejection on him. Oh, he's so holier than now. Oh, he always thinks he's right and everybody else is wrong. Hey, the standard arguments that we're going to get today when, when God's truth divides a family is the same argument that he got back then. And only stupid people fall for it. Sometimes your kids won't do what's right. And as you as a mom and dad want to hold the line and you have to drop the hammer and that truth of that daughter or son not doing what the Bible says, and let's face it, most parents don't have the guts to do this. That's why they lose their kids. They think, well, I can't do that. I don't want to lose her. You already lost them. You're just too stupid to see it. And and there's times that kids won't do what's right and the truth that a mom and dad try to hang on to, will divide that family. Now, there's a process that you can do to reverse that. It just depends on how long you wait with your kid before you try to do it. And then, on the other hand, you find parents that won't do what's right. And their kids want to do what's right, and that truth divides the family. I've known kids that saw their mom and their dad uh, as absolutely ridiculously, um, uh, you know, the worst example of what Christians should be. I mean, and the kids really want to take a stand for the truth and do what's right, and mom and dad are just always dancing around it and playing the game, and it divides them. And many times when a pastor or you or a church, any church, tries to help that, they'll get blamed for it, but that's okay because Christ's brothers and sisters, I'm sure, blamed him for it. You see, I cannot emphasize to you enough how truth will always reveal what the real bottom line is. This is why when people have issues with each other, they won't sit down and go to the Bible, which would solve every issue. You know why? One of them, sometimes both of them, the farthest thing they want coming into their scenario is truth because it reveals things. These are great lessons that you have to learn if you're going to do ministry. The second rejection here was his own nation, his brethren. Going back to John one eleven, his own people, the nation of Israel rejected him, and this would be Psalm 69, 7, 8, 9, many other places. You find it all through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You find that all of his earthly ministry, there was an element of his own people, the nation of Israel, that was against him. Now, most of you work with me in ministry. Uh, you, uh, you know, you, uh, you've, uh, you, oh, you're headed for that in my ministry. You're being discipled right now. You're, you're really moving along. You're in the Bible. You're doing really well. And it'll be a natural process of you being rooted and then built up and then establishing yourself. And you'll be there. One of the reasons I started the Bible Institute, one of the reasons why I started the people ministry Now, this story that we're reading here today and going to talk about will be an excellent example of where many of God's people are at. And I want to leave you today, those of you, I've always looked at you who work with me in ministry as equals. I, I looked at you as someone who loves this church as much as I do. You love the people in it as much as I do. And you give sacrificially of yourself way over and above to deal with people. And I want this story to be an excellent example of where many of God's people are at today. And I want you to learn some very important keys in dealing with people. It will help you keep your perspective uh, of people and your ministry to them. These are the same things that I do. I told you last week, I think it was last week, that I'm in the process of putting a book together for pastors. Uh, there's about two or three chapters of that book in this sermon this morning but you know you 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 come to the point that when you for god you know it when he came and truth came he certainly turned over some tables in god's people's lives at the first coming of christ now let me stop here tables in the bible will be defined as fellowship Revelation chapter 3, verse 20. It's also defined as study. Back there in 1 Kings or 2 Kings chapter 4, verse 10. You study at a table. And of course, you know, so when he upset the tables here, they're, they're fellowshipping with the wrong things. And so now he's purged his church. And uh, it's no different than it is today. By what is going on, uh, you know, in our own country with what we're facing is, forget the world, American Christianity, all across this country, it's very clear that God has entered into his purging of his church, which I might add is probably only the beginning. And I look at this and I'm thinking, if God's people can't stand through a little pandemic that is, uh, uh, you know, what are they going to do when it really, really, really comes to the point of getting bad? And all that he had to do by shaking up our little comfort zones. That's all he did. You stop and think about it. That's all he did. All he did for God's people. And I, and I know there's people that died, and and, and, and I get that. And that's a, I don't want anybody to die, but... <laughs> We're all going to die sometime. I mean, we as God's people have removed the afterlife and heaven and going to be with Lord so far because we have our comfort zone right here. I hate this cold weather. Barb asked me what I wanted for Valentine's Day. I said, just take the dog out all I want and I got a dog that's got to snuff everything before she decides she's going to go to the bathroom I just I thank God every day there's only one fire hydrant on our block and I'm up there and it's cold I mean I mean that wind is coming out I mean you you don't put a gloves on you I mean it's terrible you know it's just this last week or so it's been terrible, and I know people live in places, you know in Alaska and all those I get it, I get it, but that's your problem, not mine <laughs> It's cold. And uh, you know what? And I, I get up in the morning and you're in a nice, toasty bed. It's very comfortable, and I'm laying there thinking that I have got to get up and go down, because the dog's already barking. Her little timex is telling her it's time to eat. And I know that, you know, one more day i got to put on all those clothes, put on boots, put on a hat, put on a big heavy Arctic pants and top and go down there, you know, and, and, and it's just, it's, it, it's, it's not the comfort zone that I really want. And that's, that's what this Christian world is up against. God came down and threw a little icy weather in our life, didn't he? I'm not talking about the weather. We're all got out of our comfort zone. You have to wear a mask. You have to, you know, social distance. You have to come to the place where now not everybody can go to a football game or a ball game. You, you got to go to a restaurant. You got to wear it till you sit there. Now they're saying you need to wear two masks. And, and, and we as God's people, we, we, got, we get so comfortable with life God help us that ever God would ever call us to be missionaries to Africa, India, the Philippines. Because we are in our comfort zone, and what's really happened? Don't tell me about the pandemic, don't tell me about the shot. I'll just tell you what happened. God rattled our comfort zone. by truth showing up. And the truth that showed up showed us exactly how we operate for God when we get out of our comfort zone. In the face of adversity. Many of God's people just gave up across the country. I talked to a guy today, he hadn't been in church for a year. Uh, you know what and what bothered me more is the fact that I don't think he cared. We you and me we are faced with the work in the midst of opposition. And this has been a real defining moment. I, I told you when we got when we got into this, nobody believed me. People said, ah, yeah, yeah, right now. Well, the longer we go, the more defining it becomes. Because you thought this thing was going to be over in six months and then you could come back and regain your your spirituality. It ain't ever going to be over. And either we find a way to minister through it or we just all surrender to the fear that it brings. But either way, truth has defined us. And I'm sure there's people out there shutting me off right now or cussing or doing this or giving me a thumbs down instead of a thumbs up on that little thumb thing you got there. It doesn't matter. I always give myself eight or nine of them. But the reality of it is, we've been defined. We've been defined. I'm not saying you don't do stuff stupid. I, I don't. I'm not saying you do out do stupid things. I think that it's whatever. I, I think that Mary Schlesser, when she was a missionary to the leper colony, I don't think she probably stayed in her homes at night. But she was a missionary for over 30 years. And as time goes on, it becomes more clear every day of how God's people are not able to adapt. Now, these eight verses here will show us a great lesson about ministry and dealing with God's people just like Christ had to deal with them. Now, let me be clear, and I know you know this, but just so I get it off my chest and be clear about it, the ministry is people. The ministry is flesh and blood people. When we started our ministry to, for you to help me in ministry, I could have called it anything I wanted to call it. I just kept it simple, the people ministry, because the ministry is people. And in that, I wanted to teach you and train you, and then we added institute to it because I want you to be part of what I'm doing. I want you to work by my side. But you've got to understand how ministry works and what ministry is. It's with people. And I guess, I know this is true for me. I guess the greatest example uh, of all Christ is going through and what you and I will go through in dealing with people would be a study of the leadership of the man Moses. He is one of the greatest studies of leadership in ministry and the opposition that we will face. He faced it, Christ faced it, and you and I will face it. Moses, as a pastor or a leader, will uh, to his people represent God's truth, the law, the truth of God is always equated to Moses. He was a pastor to God's people, the nation of Israel, in the Old Testament saint, sense that you find, like in Jeremiah chapter three, verse fifteen. There is more written about Moses in the Bible than any other man, except the Lord Jesus Christ. And Moses is one of the twenty-one types of Christ in the Bible. Christ had Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John that laid out His ministry. <coughs> Moses has Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy that lays out His. See how it works. And for sure, the whole world at that time uh, was run by Egypt. That'll be Exodus chapter one, verse thir- one through thirteen was against Him as Rome was against Christ. But as with Christ, as with you and me. <coughs> The real opposition and issue with him came from within, God's people, not the world system. Why, when Pharaoh, when Pharaoh, Pharaoh was after him back there, he just turned the water to blood and did all these things. When Pharaoh chased him after Egypt, he just opened the Red Sea they got across, and then and then swallowed him up. End of Egypt. The enduring on enduring on through his ministry was the very people he came and God sent him to to minister to. In my book, to Pastors, I have a chapter called The Anatomy of a Church. My anatomy of a church in the New Testament is based on the anatomy of the church in the Old Testament. And if you'll know from Acts chapter 7 that the nation of Israel is called the church in the wilderness. You know that, of course. And you'll find that you want to study the anatomy of, as a pastor, of what a church is today. Go back and look at the church pattern model back in the Old Testament with Moses. And you'll find that there, when Israel came out of Egypt, there, there's three parts to their anatomy. And you'll find in the Christian church today, in the true biblical church, you'll find that there's three parts to its anatomy. When you lay it all out, you'll find that everything that the nation of Israel did centered around the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant. That was where it all centered from. That Ark is a type of Christ. That tabernacle, we've studied it many, many times. It's a great picture of lots of things. But the center of the nation of Israel was the Ark. Now, the first ingredient were three families. And those three families, their job was to take care of everything with the tabernacle and the ark. They were the ones that were the closest to the ark in the Old Testament. Three inner families. You had the family of Gershom. They're called the Gershmanites. You had the family of of Korah. They were called the Korites. And the family of uh, Moriah. they were called the Marianonites. These three families ministered as close to the ark and the tabernacle, and they had responsibility of taking it down, putting it up, putting it together. I mean, it's incredible. The family of Gershon took care of the skins, the covers of the curtains. The Mirianites took care of the boards, the the sockets, and all the other aspect of it. Everybody, every family had their job. And they picture for us the inner circle of every church. They picture for us the families in every church that they're as close to the ark as they can get and they do the job of ministering around that ark, and they are the core people of the nation of Israel, and they will be the core ingredient in any New Testament church. Then you had a second group of this anatomy, and that will be the 12 tribes themselves. Now, when they camped, the ark was in the center. The three families were taking care of that, and then the 12 tribes pitch their tents in a circle around that ark. Now, this is all laid out for you back in Numbers chapter 4. And uh, you'll find that the 12 tribes represent for us the common, ordinary people who make up most churches. They're there every Sunday. They, they wouldn't think of missing in church, but there's no real investment in, in the ark. They come to get what they need to get out of it. They come to need to get what they want out of it. But they're, they're, they're not like the three inner families. They don't invest themselves on that level. They're good people. But they just don't ever get to that point where they want to get that close to Christ. The ark. Then in Numbers chapter 11, you have our third group of the anatomy of a church based on the anatomy of the ministry of the nation of Israel, and that'll be the mixed multitude. These will be the people who camped at the outermost parts of the camp. They wanted to get as far away from that. Hey, they came out of Egypt. They're at church every Sunday. But they wanted to get as far away from that ark as they could. And they are called in the Bible the mixed multitude. They were in the uttermost parts of the camp. But yet they're still part of the congregation and the church. Acts chapter 7 verse 38, Church of the Wilderness. Now they're there every Sunday. Speaking of today. Now, this is always where the opposition starts. When you go through, you'll find that the mixed multitude had a great impact on the 12 tribes because you'll find that every time Moses has... Now, this is stuff you learn, man. You'll find that every time there's an issue with the nation of Israel, that's where it starts. The mixed multitude gets into the 12 tribes and then the 12 tribes get split on the thing and this is why they wound up making a golden calf not 30 days after coming out of Egypt. This is why when they were out in the wilderness and there was nothing to eat they wasn't satisfied that God was going to send them supernatural food. He did. They wanted to lead a group back to Egypt where they could eat all of the, all the garlic and the leeks and the melons because all they had was that dry, boring King James 1611. The supernatural manna from heaven. Oh, they didn't die out back then. Are you kidding me? Now you study this anatomy, you're gonna find that the only group that these outer people never penetrated. Was those three families. You see, you know why you'll listen to gossip. You know why you'll get messed up with with stupid stuff on the internet and all the Facebook and all that stuff. You know why you get caught up in that and you fall for it and you believe it. It's very simple because you got nothing invested in church. You got nothing invested in the ark. You don't have to be somewhere on Monday night to teach somebody the Bible or Tuesday night or Thursday night or Wednesday night or go being taught by somebody. You got nothing invested. You see, these three inner families, they had everything invested. So the outer camp, the mixed multitude could never penetrate. And just like telling the pastors now, just like that in your church, you get a strong core of people that are your inner core people. You're always going to have the anatomy breaking down into three. You're always going to have that. The key is you want to have your core people bigger than the mixed multitude, but they're not going to go away. And they may play havoc with the stupid people out there that aren't really invested in anything. They'll never get to the core. Never. You know why? Not because they're so spiritual, though they are. Not because they don't do dumb things. They do. But you know what the main ingredient is? They've invested themselves in something. Makes all the difference in the world. You're sitting there on your couch this morning with your bag of Cheetos, invested in nothing except the orange stuff on your fingers from the Cheetos. Understanding people. Understanding people is understanding how to do ministry. And there is an anatomy to the church based on the anatomy to God's people in the Old Testament and Christ faced the same opposition that Moses did and you and I will face the same opposition that both Christ and Moses did too. And in in our study today, I want to show you out of this chapter in John chapter 2 as we close it out, three things that uh, we need to know, you need to know about the people that you are going to minister to if you ever get to that level. Now the first thing is found in verse eighteen. It says, "Then answered the Jews and said unto him, What sign showest thou unto us, seeing that thou doest these things?" Now that's the first thing you want to you want to always mark down about these kind of people. They're always looking for something new from God. They've never learned to rest in the principles or the promises of the Word of God. They don't know squat about anything that God. All they're looking for is a sign from God, something new. They're like the Athenians in Acts chapter 7, verse 21. They wanted somebody to tell them of some new thing. The translation of verse 18 is simply how do we know that what's happening is really of God? And you see, that is the biggest problem that they all have. They have no spiritual discernment. They can't discern when God is in something and when it's not. Obviously, they can't because of the friends they hang out with. They can't see God in anything. Now, honestly, the Jews are told to look for a sign and to receive a sign because that's proof of the authority Of the leader, Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 17 and 19. And in verse Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22, we're told that the Jews require a sign. We're told in 1 Corinthians 14, uh, verse 25, I think it is, that tongues at that time was for a sign. And we go back to the beginning of those signs in Exodus chapter 4. I've talked about that before. And now, here they are, the opposition. the people that have rejected truth, the people that want nothing to do with Christ but under the facade of pretending to be spiritual. What sign do you have for us today? Now, this is the same bunch that had the signs in Matthew chapter 12, verse 38, just to keep the record clear here. This is the same bunch in Matthew 12, uh, verse 38, that when he did all of the signs there, they said that the spirit by which he did them was the spirit of the devil. That's this crowd. The spirit by which he does these things is by the spirit of Beelzebub. And again, we see in John chapter 6, verse 30, they're asking for a sign again. These guys have more proof than they can handle. I mean, there's more signs more signs in their life than going from Kansas City to St. Louis on I-70. Look right in at our text, verse 23. And many believed in his name when they saw the miracles, plural, he did. God's people today that you're going to work with, that you better understand what you're working with or you'll quit before you start. They're just like people here. They can't see what God's doing all around them. Listen, when you start to deal with people, God's people, you're going to hook up with some of the most self-centered, self-righteous, all about themselves, people you'll ever meet. Nothing about Christ's work, just the drama that they go through in life every day. You see it on Facebook. I'm not on Facebook, but everybody sends me these screen shots. Thank you which i would just as soon reading some of them send me whiskey shots. I can do a lot better with it. But anyway, they, 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 it's unbelievable. The drama. Nothing about Christ. Nothing about I'm working with so-and-so. Nothing about so-and-so got saved. Just wah, 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 wah. <coughs> four wahs, four coughs, it even out. Excuse me. God's doing some incredible things all around them. They can't see it. People getting saved, lives being changed, opportunity after opportunity of taking God's truth to people, and they can't see anything that God doing. Years ago, I had a guy. He complained about everything, and he he was complaining about something that was really stupid. And I asked him. I said, "Let me ask you something." I said. Now, we were going through a great time right then as a church. People were getting saved. And I asked him, I said, let me ask you. In the last 30 days, we've had nine people saved. Who are they? He didn't have a clue. You know what the bottom line is? It's hard to see what God's doing in the lives of others, even in your own church, when he's doing absolutely nothing in your own life. It's hard to see a miracle of God and understand it when you've never had one yourself. I mean, come on. You're at another church now, really? And you're not doing anything there any more than you did here. Come on. When are you going to get it through your head that you are the problem? I mean, I'm just telling you. Now, in ministry and dealing with people, you'll need to remember that. The outer camp, the mixed multitude. They wanted as far from the ark, Christ, as they could get. This will always be the base and the form of opposition that you'll get from God's people. It always starts with that crowd. And they will infect the others. Job of a pastor, I'm telling you pastors right now, the job of a pastor, keep that crowd as low as you can. You know how you do that? Preach truth preach truth truth is truth is like going into your kitchen in a dirty house and turning on the light and there's 28 cockroaches on the floor and when the light comes on they all scatter under the cupboard that's what light does to the mixed multitude scatters them like the religious leaders of Christ's day they will not uh, they will be against anybody that is is doing the work of god that they're not doing pattern of human nature it never changes from Genesis 3 to Revelation chapter 20. Now, the second thing. You'll need to know this, too, when you work with people. This will be another chapter in the book you need to know when you give this the truth of God's word. And you know and that's what the job is. I mean Paul said it better than I could ever say it in Colossians chapter 1 verse 25. He says, "Wherefore I am a minister according to the dispensation of God which is given to me for you, why? To fulfill God's word." That's the job of the church, it's the job of a pastor, it's the job of you people here working with me in ministry. Our job as ministers is to fulfill the Word of God in somebody's life. How's that working for you? I mean, what do you do with that? Now, the second thing here will be, and you will need to remember this, that not only can they not see what God is doing right under their noses, but they can't get anything out of the Word of God on their own. Look at verse 19, 20, and 21. Jesus answered and said unto them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then said the Jews, Forty and six years was the temple in building, and wilt thou rear it up in three days? But he spake of the temple of his body. When therefore he was risen from the dead as the south would remember that he had said this unto them and they believed the scriptures and the word that Jesus had said. He just gave them one of the greatest spiritual keys to who he really was through all of the signs that he had with all the Old Testament prophecies and they can't, they can't, they can't get it. Which is by the way from Matthew chapter 12 verse 40 the only sign they needed was the sign of Jonah the prophet. That's a picture of the resurrection. That was written back there during the captivity. These people, God's people, from the Old Testament scripture should have known exactly who he was and what temple he was talking about and were going to raise up from the book of Jonah and certainly from the book of Daniel. I mean, come on, the wise men in in, uh, uh, Matthew chapter 2, they got it and they were 600 miles away. And just like God's people today, the scriptures are closed to them. They can't get anything out of it. They pretend like today that they're spiritual, that they love God and they honor God, but you put an open Bible in front of them? And the proof of their phone is, is they can't get anything real out of the Bible. They have to get it from somebody else. In ministry, for me, my ministry, I, I I stand amazed at people many times, and I've seen it all my ministry in almost life, almost 50 years now. And I say this: I know that many of you, you're learning your Bible right now, and I'm not what I'm about to say, I'm not talking to you you just got saved or you've been saved for a long time but weren't anywhere where to learn the Bible and you've come to this church and you're being discipled or going to be discipled or you're some form of learning, you're an institute, you're this, and you wouldn't miss it for the world and you're grabbing everything you can. I get that. So I'm not talking to you. But I've seen some of God's people who come uh, here into this church and you know absolutely nothing. I mean, you're going to come to the Bible, you'd only know nothing. You're so stupid you don't suspect anything. And yet in a year or so, boy, you are well on your way. You are learning your Bible. You let none of his words fall to the ground like young Samuel. I've watched you start out by being discipled and putting it all together, and now you've continued on with the same group or another group, and now you're well beyond that, and you're helping other people. And your whole life is just moving forward in that establishing yourself as being rooted and built up. And you're by my side. You're helping me. You're doing what I can't as one man do. You got your little groups. I'll tell you, those, those, what are those groups we do on this? Those lifeline groups? (laughs) Now, I guarantee you, when I started that. Many, maybe maybe not many, but a lot of God's people said, well, what is he doing that for? Is that just something else to do? Well, now you see how stupid you are by making that statement. It's impacting people everywhere. I mean, it's going across this country. I mean, people are gravitating to it, and it's now filling a void. You know what it was? It was just another opportunity that we couldn't do our prayer groups. In fact, I don't know that I'll ever go back to the prayer groups ever again. You know why? We're getting more done this way than we did up there. It's about in the midst of any adversity, folks, realizing that God doesn't shut it down, but God's people do. And you just find a way. I've had people that come into this church not knowing anything. You know, in a year's time or so, boy, they're going to town. I, they're growing, man. They're doing things. And some of you young singles, that's why I created the singles ministry. That's why I gave you the Timothy thing. And that's why I work with you in Bible Institute along with so many other you moms and dads and people who, who think it's worthy for you to be there because that's where it, that's where it all comes together. And I watch you begin to teach and work with people. And I watch you. I find out what you're doing and then I keep adding people or adding things to you help exercise your spiritual gifts even a little bit more. Yet I say that I've had others be under my teaching for 20, 30 years, maybe more. And today they have absolutely nothing to show for it. (laughs) I mean, mean, they're they're still at the Bible basics, man, when it comes to understanding and unlocking the Scriptures. And they've been under my teaching for 20, 30, 40 years, some of them. And they still can't put the Bible together. They're still at a sub-basic level. And 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 then you actually wonder why God's not using you. You're outside the mainstream. You're not in that inner circle around the ark. You're hanging out with a mixed multitudes. That's God's people. And you'll have to understand it to deal with it. And in John chapter 2 verses 18 through 25, it'll answer a lot of questions for us. We got babes in Christ. Every church should have a spiritual nursery. Every church should have a place where I've had people that were with me back in the day that never did anything that have come back now, and they're on fire. They're, they're helping doing whatever they can do. I mean, they're here, uh, I'm just getting it where they can. And I, 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 that's what it's all about, but every church is going to have a spiritual nursery. It should. And I'm all for that. we got a physical nursery back there. Well, we don't, but we do, kind of. Uh, But it's a thing where, you know, you go back there and you have the little cribs and you see the little babies in there with their bottles, and nobody thinks anything of it. Would you think it was weird if you went back there some Sunday and there was a 40-year-old man in there laying in one of those little cribs with his big hairy legs hanging out over the end of it with a bottle in his mouth, wham, wham, wham? Wouldn't you think that's a little out of place? You see, you think it is that way back here, but you don't think it is here because you stay spiritual babies all your lives. But see, it's okay. And Christians who refuse to grow for 20, 30 years and stay a baby, uh, they'll be the first ones when the opposition comes that they're going to struggle with it. I mean, go back and look at Psalms chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. Once you start walking, quit walking with God, then you start walking with the ungodly. Counsel of the ungodly. When you start walking with the counsel of the ungodly, pretty soon you're not walking with him anymore. Now you're sitting, now you're standing in the way with sinners. Now you're developing a sinful way. And then pretty soon you're sitting in the seat of the scornful. You're scorning everything about Christ, the church, everything that people do for the ministry just like they did in Jesus' time. It's not a hard process. And then the third thing you'll need to know about people. And I think this is one of the most important things you'll ever learn when you deal with people. And it's found in verse 23, 24, and 25. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover in the feast day, many believed on his name when they saw the miracles which he did, but Jesus did not commit himself unto them because he knew all men. And needed not that any should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. And boy, if you're going to work in ministry, you better learn those two things. You better know you better know and understand. All men. Back in 2 Kings chapter 4, I've given you the study before of how you learn how unsaved people think the way they think, do the things they do, and say the things that they say. In John chapter 2, you have it for New Testament Christianity. And in verse 24, he says he knew all men, and in verse 25, he says he knew what was in man. Now, boy, those are the two things you better learn or you'll be out of this thing called ministry before you ever get in. Remember, the anatomy of a church. You know, 50 years ago, in fact, it'll be 50 years this April, maybe May. I can't remember. I think it was probably the end of April, first of May. As a young guy who just, knew that I wasn't where God wanted me to be. I went forward that that night in church and and gave my heart and Lord and my life to the Lord. Almost a half a century ago. And you know, back then I was pretty naive about a lot of things. Back then I thought all God's people were angels. I think I thought they just tucked their wings in under their shirts. If you would have told me back then that women in the choir were <clears throat> bad-mouthing other people and gossiping and spreading this and spreading that. Didn't have Facebook back then, but <clears throat> it was all done on a telephone. In fact, the joke was tele- the, the three three forms of communication is telegraph, telephone, and telewoman. And uh, if you'd have told me that there were women in the choir that were sitting up there singing those great songs that were doing all those ungodly things. If you'd have told me there were men there in the church service that night that uh, were deacons and whatever that were smoking cigarettes or... Or carousing, or drinking, and doing all these things. If you'd have told me that people in that church were backbiting and gossiping, lying, and cheating on this things, I'd have punched your lights out. But boy, did I get it a did I get a broadening awakening of what really goes on in Christianity? That was in April and May, and three months later, thereabouts in July, <clears throat> I went to my first camp as a worker. I wanted to do whatever I could do with God. And, and Dr. Rockman was preaching at senior camp that year. I had heard him before preach, but I never got to spend any real time with him. And this is where, you know, I got to, got to know him a little better and sitting up in his cabin, we talked about war stories and things like that. And i never forget that one night he preached on the whole armor of God. And I'll never forget it. And he's up there, you know how he draws things out and he's drawing that thing up there. And he said, he turned around, he says, kids, let me tell you something. If you ever decide to serve God and don't compromise when you're, uh, you're tempted to compromise and don't quit when you're tempted to quit, he says, I'm going to tell you something. The battle you're going to get in are going to make all the battles of life look like a bunch of kids shooting marbles. Turned her back around and he started drawing that soldier again. He said, I'm telling you, you get to serve God and you do what God wants you to do. I mean, the battle you're going to get into is going to look like the Civil War and the Battle of Marne and Chateau Ferry and Okinawa and Iwo Jima and Bastogne look like a bunch of kids just fooling around and having fun. And you know, when he said that that night, I honestly didn't believe him. I, I thought to myself, how could that be? But boy, I believe him now. He was right. And most of the battles and the opposition will come from God's people who, like in Christ's day, had rejected truth as far as following it. They won't grow, or they stop growing, and yet they're in church every Sunday. Oh, Bob Jones Sr. said one time in dealing with people, the more I deal with people, the better I like dogs. I get it. All it takes to fix any issue that comes up in any scenario with any people, church, or whatever, just like John chapter 2 with Israel, all it will take is just to bring the truth in to any given situation and find out who's right and who's wrong. But as I always said, the ministry would be a breeze if it wasn't for people. Verse 24 and 25 said, Jesus knew all men. And then it says, and he knew what was in man. And yet the ministry is going to be people. And if you're going to do God's work, you'd better learn what I'm about to say. I mean, folks, we may be saved and on our way to heaven. Praise God. Glory to God. But you and me still got that old sin nature. And that old sin nature is as far from God and Christ as the mixed multitude was. And as God's people, you can do and be everything. Listen to me. As a, as a child of God, you can do and be everything an unsaved man is except go to hell. What Jesus knew about man is what I had to learn about man. And you're gonna to have to learn about man, and that is our heart's wrong. Yeah. Jeremiah seventeen nine says, For the heart is deceitful of all things and desperately wicked, who can know it? Our heart's wrong. They say in life that the number one killer of people in America is heart disease. Well, I'll tell you right now, it's the number one killer of God's people too, spiritually. The second thing Jesus knew about man was our imaginations are all wrong. 2 Corinthians 10.5, casting down imagination and every high thing that exalted itself against the knowledge of God. Not God, but God's truth, the knowledge of God. You see that? And bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. Now, not only is my heart wrong and my imaginations wrong, but our righteousness is no good. Isaiah 64, 6 says that all of our righteousness is as filthy rags in the sight of God. It ain't any good. Then you get into Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 18, and Romans chapter 3 tells us that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, and there's none to do with good, no, not one. You see, when you and I got saved, he paid for our sin debt and washed you clean. That was your soul, but your flesh is something else. And a child of God can live after the flesh. He can't live in it, but he can live after it all his life. Many of them do. See, he didn't take your flesh away. He just gave you truth that you could keep it under control. And when you're a wicked, lying, deceitful Christian, and truth shows up in your life, you hate it. Then he says he knew what was in man. Romans 3.13 says that our throat is an open sepulcher. Romans 3.13 says that our tongue is deceitful. 3.13 says that under our lips is the poison of asps. 3.14 says that our mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. 3.15 is that our feet is swift to shed blood. Verse 16 says that destruction and misery are our ways. And he caps it all off, and 3.18 says, and there's no fear of God before their eyes. And they're in church every Sunday. And I'm telling you, if you're going to get into ministry and you're going to work with people. If we're going to see where this new horizon goes and we're getting plenty of opportunities with new people that are coming in the church. And I've set several of them up in the last week. People are working with them. I am telling you the greatest opposition Jesus faced with his own people. And when you do ministry, the greatest opposition you're going to face will be God's people. And before you decide to enter into the work that God has for you, you better sit down and count the cost. You know, people talk about leadership today. You have guys that do seminars on leadership and what it needs to be a leader. Uh, you know, I'm telling you, I've said before, you know, everybody thinks that, well, he's got the ability or she's got the ability to be a great leader. Leadership is never about ability. Never is. Leadership is about responsibility. Leadership is about accountability to truth, at least in the Bible. Because when you're a leader, when it comes to the Word of God, that truth is going to separate you sometimes from your friends, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, or your bosom buddy that you thought was your friend, or even a family like it did for Christ. Your friends will leave and forsake you. (laughs) Believe me. They will tell you one day or for ten years how much they love you, and when push comes to shove, they're gone like the wind. You know what I've learned? I've learned that friends will forsake you. You better learn this. Sometimes your friends will forsake. So I get it. You sometimes you got people who die with you. That's that's a great thing. But that's not the that's 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 the exception to the rule. I am telling you right now, your friends will forsake you, but truth never will. Truth will stand by you when nothing else or nobody else will. And that's why you never embrace people without embracing the truth first. Now, here's probably the greatest thing that I've ever learned about ministry outside of salvation. And I want you to know right now, I've been in this thing almost 50 years, and I've been, I would have gotten out of this thing a long time ago. I would have said to myself, it isn't worth it. I would have said to myself, you know what? The idea of, of no good deed will go unpunished is so true in ministry. And I'd have been out of it a long time ago if it wasn't for this one thing. And I I leave you with this because this is where you've got to get to. Even though Jesus knew all men and even though he knew what was in man, he still loved him enough to come down and in spite of man or our indifferences, he died for man on the cross of Calvary. And in ministry, even though Man's old nature can make him a horrible Christian. You always do what Jesus did in his ministry, his work, and his hour. You stay with it, and don't take it personal. Realize what is, man's all about. Realize what's in man, and you simply stay faithful in taking the truth and helping as many people as you can. That, my friend, is a biblical ministry based on the Word of God. Jesus loved me in spite of who I was. I'll love God's people in spite of who they are. But in both cases, it has to be based on truth. Remember, you doing God's work for Him. You ain't doing it for yourself. You're doing His work. We bear His cross. We suffer His shame knowing full well that Jesus, as I said, He came and not one time hurt anybody. He only did for people what was the best, and He always wanted the best for them, and yet nobody wanted anything to do with Him. It will be the same way with you in your work and your ministry. As I said, no good deed will go unpunished. The ministry is putting yourself out to people without guile, without any preconceived notion or idea without any judgment without any agenda allowing them to receive truth and grow or to reject it and stay where they are and even blame it on you. That's exactly what they did with Christ and that's exactly what they'll do to you. Just make sure In ministry, the truth is always on your side. That when you do sit down and open up the book, that the truth will take its own stand. Those kinds of people will always be in God's rearview mirror in the ministry of life. Make sure that you and I don't wind up in God's rearview mirror. You stay current with him and the word of God in the book and you follow ministry just like he did. You learn the patterns. You see in the Old Testament why unsaved people do the things they do so you can better work with them. Now in John 2 at the end of this chapter, you see why God's people do the, way the things that they do and where the real opposition to Christ was will be the same opposition that you and I face. But that's just the way that it is. You have to find a way around every opposition that's going to come through life to you to do the work God called you to and saved you for. Well, we'll hold up there. Let's have a word of prayer. Be careful going home. I'm sure we got 20 inches of snow out there by now. And uh, be safe. Don't forget Thursday night. uh, Send your questions in to me if you have any this week. Uh, Make sure you sign Wes's card back here uh, that we get that out to him this week. And you got all the information for uh, for the funeral this week. And uh, sign up for the food back there, and uh, you know all how it's going. Let's have a word of prayer, and we'll be dismissed. Father, we do thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus. Lord, I thank you personally for this, for this chapter. Lord, it's meant so much to me over the years, and it was good for me today to give it to the people here that work with me by my side. And Lord, I know that some of them are still learning, some of them are growing, some of them are still finding their way, and boy, I'm excited about that, and let them know that I'm personally here to help them however I can. But I thank you for the ones that have crossed over, that they're doing the work, that their week is filled with people that they're investing their lives in in this church. They're not sitting on a couch someplace or behind a keyboard criticizing everything that God's doing because they're upset that he's not doing anything in their lives. They're actively investing in the lives of people. And, Lord, I thank you for that. And help us to always build more people toward that end. And Lord, we do love you. Thank you for all you do. Give us a safe trip home. Give us a good week. And Lord, we thank you and praise you for all you do. In Jesus' name, is sake we ask it. Amen. God-